Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. This week on Highways Voices, we're automating. What is the safety benefit of having all of those driver assistance technologies as a package within the vehicle that may increase safety beyond the additional risks that might be introduced through having that technology present. Are we clever enough to design around all of the ways in which a human driver might misuse or abuse these types of systems? Professor Nick Reed is our main guest on this week's podcast as we look at everything to do with connected and automated vehicles. It's Highways Voices driving the conversation. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. So Nick Reed to come on Highways Voices, which is, of course, from Highways News, your home of your daily briefing of everything you need to know in the highways and transport technology industries. And my partner in crime at Highways News, Adrian Tatum, joins me. And Adrian, I had uh, most of last week off, so therefore left you in sole control of the good ship Highways News. What were the best stories that we've run over the last week? Well, it's been yet another busy week in the offices of Highways News. News actually yesterday that the UK's second national infrastructure assessment will be published in the second half of 2023 and consultation and analysis to inform the recommendations will commence this autumn. The National Infrastructure Commission has confirmed. Elsewhere, decarbonisation has a crucial role to play in, in helping the UK meet its net zero target, says an ICE online roundtable. Uh, amongst the guests, Rachel McLean, Parliament Undersecretary for the Department of Transport, the minister responsible for the upcoming transport decarbonisation plan. It says that plans and objectives and priorities will be discussed later this year as the UK looks to meet its net zero target by 2050 or earlier. And elsewhere, Morgan Sindel was awarded the contract for the Carlisle Southern Link Road. You get all the news you need every day on Highways News. You just have to sign up, highways-news.com. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. If you were avidly reading uh, Highways News last week, you'll have seen a headline that self-driving cars will be able to travel up to 37 miles an hour on motorways this year under new rules being uh, set out by the government. So let's find out more about that and where we are actually on self-driving cars this week on Highways Voices. And I'm really pleased to get one of I'm not exaggerating here, the world's leading experts on connected and autonomous vehicles. He's Professor Nick Reed of Reed Mobility, who's a professor at Surrey University, which is my old stamping ground. Nick, thanks for joining us on Highways Voices uh, this week. Self-driving cars to go up to 37 miles per hour on motorways before a driver has to take control, the government has confirmed. Um, I suppose my very first question for you is, why 37? seven miles an hour great question the the limit is 60 kilometers per hour which our imperial terms is is 37 miles per hour and i think that's to do with the the capabilities of the sensors at this moment in time so if you wanted to travel faster you obviously need to see further and i think in terms of the the confidence of the technology developers in in enabling this system it's it's not as as ready as they would like it to be so there is that uh, slower speed 
limitation. What happened last week was the government launched a consultation on the rules around the use of technology in vehicles associated with this level of automation, this automated lane keeping system. It would only operate in a single lane and it would only operate on motorway environments. So we're talking about a system that can do the driving for you in low speed motorway congestion. Outside of that, you're fully responsible for driving. It's a small step in terms of getting towards the car that can do all the driving for you, but it's a big step in terms of shifting liability for safe control of the vehicle from the driver to the technology. Because the technology's been around for a while. A chap, my uh, fellow father of a uh, boy that played cricket with my son, um, would tell me about how he would quite happily put his Tesla into autopilot as he drove along the A12 and absolutely loved it because it made his uh, journey home from work much less stressful, he said. The difference, I guess, is at every single moment while the car was in effect doing the driving, he had to be in control. It was his job to make sure that the car was, uh, was driving safely and correctly. So now it's handing over to the car. That's the, the big difference between the two, I take it. Exactly right. And the, as you said, in the Tesla, it's a, a level two system, according to the, the SAE um, definition. So the driver has to be alert and attentive and ready to take over and is, is fully responsible for the safe operation of the vehicle. At level three, which is what this ALKS system would be, is the, the system is responsible for safe control, but the driver must be ready to come back into the loop uh, and take control at short notice. So this isn't a system that will allow you to sleep for long periods of times. So it wouldn't allow you to, to disengage entirely you need to be ready to, to come back into the loop within a 10-second uh, grace period. And that's interesting, the 10 seconds, because I remember, um, I'm not sure if you've ever had the joys of driving over the uh, uh, the Bay Bridge in San Francisco from Oakland into San Francisco itself. And the, the road network at the end of the, on, at the San Francisco end looks rather like somebody's dropped some spaghetti onto the floor because the roads go here, there and everywhere. And... I was talking to a chap out in the Bay who was saying that their testing of driverless vehicles over there would tell the driver to take over about a mile and a half before it reached that junction because the car had looked at the mapping and looked at everything else and gone, no, not doing this. This is back to you. But had given a long period of time. So the testing from your old stamping ground at TRL, I guess, on the simulators uh, will test the right level of time for a human to actually take back control and 10 seconds is reasonable and safe? Well, that depends. I think it depends very much on the situation into which the driver is uh, catapulted, if you like. It also depends on the individual characteristics of that driver. They may be less experienced. They may be of diminishing eyesight. For the, their, their, their capabilities may be diminished but through, uh, through ageing. So the time it takes for the driver to resume control, I don't think it's a, a set value that, that can be established. It's um, the technologies on board the vehicle will have to monitor the driver and make sure they are not disengaging to the extent that they can't resume control rapidly. And I think 
there will need to be some additional support for the driver as they go through that process of coming back into the loop. So, you know, the the auto, automatic emergency braking systems will still need to be operational. The lane keeping system will still need to be operational so that the, the driver can ease into that process without unnecessarily engaging in, in risky driving. Are you happy with this concept and are you happy with this step from two to three i think it's an important step to make i think what we don't know at the moment is the safety benefit that can be achieved from this system so there are many organizations rightly pointing out the risks of calling this system self-driving and and that's that's absolutely correct there is it's not that the system can do all the driving for you it's a it's a collaboration between the technology and the human driver. Where I'm interested is what is the safety benefit of having all of those driver assistance technologies as a package within the vehicle that may increase safety beyond the additional risks that might be introduced through having that technology present. So is there a net overall net benefit of having a very high standard lane keeping system, a very high standard automatic emergency braking system, a driver monitoring system that will be operating all the time to check that the driver is alert and awake. You know, so many collisions have fatigue as a contributory factor. Some of those may be mitigated by having this um, driver monitoring system that will be operating all the time, never mind just uh, just whilst the um, automation system is active. So, um, yeah, my interest is whether that on balance there is a, a net benefit to having these technologies on board. Now, when we used to go to events and actually see people in three dimensions, I remember one speaker, and it, it could actually have been you, pointing out that it was almost the old analogy of you make something idiot proof and they invent better idiots. Um, you put more tech onto a vehicle and the drivers then just stop thinking as much about it. And the example they gave is headlights on a car that come on automatically when it goes dark. So drivers stop thinking about it. And then you get, especially in fog, people driving in quite thick fog, not putting their lights on because they never have to. So they don't think about it. So you, we've seen, and again, these are two Tesla examples because they make the headlines, but other vehicles are available. I'm not picking on Tesla here in any way, because actually I think they're, they're great cars. But you had the chap driving down the M1 who filmed himself and put on social media him sitting in the passenger seat with the car driving. And obviously he got done for that. And then only a couple of weeks ago, the uh, crash in Houston, where there was it, it appears nobody in the driver's seat when a car a tesla crashed into a tree and killed two people i guess my question is are drivers up to actually being given the responsibility almost of not being responsible yeah i, I think i would approach that question in a, in a slightly different way and say are we clever enough to design around all of the ways in which a human driver might misuse or abuse these types of system. One of the issues around current automation systems is, is that lack of driver monitoring. And I think if we can develop systems that reliably detect, firstly, the presence of a driver to make sure they haven't shifted into the, the passenger seat or the back seat, but also that they are 
paying the right level of attention as is befitting for the level of automation that is, is currently operating, then I think we can tackle some of the, um, the ways in which drivers might misuse the system. We need to think almost in an adversarial way. What, what are all the ways in which drivers could misuse or, or try to break these systems and make sure we are comfortable that, that the technology is able to at least bring the vehicle to a safe stop should the driver be misusing the system or, you know, the, 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 the driver has a health issue and is unable to, to respond. Can the vehicle bring, bring itself safely to a halt? That in itself would be a, a great benefit. And when we talk about liability, it goes, therefore, to the vehicle rather than the driver. How's that work? Because, of course, a lot of the projects that CCAV have funded here in the UK have been not about the technology, but about the human side of things. And Direct Line and AXA have both been extremely active in working on the insurance side of things. Where are we now, then, at the end of the year, if I were to... Um, put my car into automation I'm sitting there and before I'm told to take over again something happens and there's a uh, an insurance claim or a legal issue what what's what, what am I going to do I think some of that depends on what the outcome of this consultation process will be so there's no guarantee that you will be able to, to operate that ALKS system I, I guess it depends on on what the consultation produces the other dimension that's that's happening at the moment is the Law Commission's review of automated vehicle operation in the UK. That is due to conclude towards the end of this year. So they've had their three consultations, amazing kind of body of, of work that they're producing, fantastic reference material, if nothing else. But the questions they've been asking are, are really pertinent, really relevant questions as to how we can satisfy ourselves that automated vehicles will be operated safely, effectively, um, in ways that suit the, the the legal environment in which we uh, in which we live. Um, and the outcome of their work will be recommendations uh, around how the legal environment should change to to adapt to um, the introduction of automated vehicles. And uh, yeah, there there will there's a process then of introducing legislation in response if that's the the, the way that the government chooses to go. So yeah, I think there's a lot of promise around the UK's legal position for automated vehicles, but it will take time as these things do in terms of the actual changes in the law that will happen to enable their deployment. These are baby steps at the moment. As you say, this is the first step to go from level two to level three. Now, uh, the question is, where are we going and how quickly? Because I remember meeting... Chris Urmson, who led the Google car team uh, at an event in back in San Francisco in 2014. And he was very confident that within six years, by the time his 10 year old son was old enough to drive, he wasn't going to need a driving license because he was going to just get in a car and the car was going to drive him wherever he wanted to go. And he would never actually have to learn to drive himself. Clearly, that hasn't happened. Time as that it, it seems that there's always sort of stretching as to how far away full automation is. Where are we on the scale? And are we a ever going to get to level five, which is full automation, no steering wheel, you get in the car and it drives you somewhere? And B, 
do we actually need that or are we trying to solve a problem that really doesn't exist? I like the way you frame the question as in where where are we on this? Because I think where is the the um, the important issue here? Where will these vehicles operate? So if Chris Urmson's son happened to live in, in Chandler, there is the, the possibility that most of his journeys in the local environment could be completed with uh, with Waymo, the daughter of the original Google self-driving car project, what evolved into, into Waymo, the alphabet company that uh, is offering that service. So in that small environment, it is possible to use a, 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 an automated vehicle. There are other companies that are on the verge of doing similar, pr- producing similar offerings. So cruise automation, um, Aurora, which is Chris Ermson's company now, Argo AI, we had the announcement recently of Ocado and Oxbotica working closely together on, on factory automation. So in specific environments, the progress will be rapid. The, the question then is how quickly will those scale to the point where they become relevant to uh, you know, the, the, the masses? When, when will it be possible for you know, the everyday person to, to use an automated vehicle as, as part of their mobility life? That will take time. And to your point around level five, I think it is it is a fantasy to think that it can do everything everywhere uh, that a human driver can do. And do we really need that? Surely, if we can get level four vehicles that can do most of the journeys most of the time, that will unlock most of the value that a level five vehicle could could achieve. So I think the challenge now is increasing the the scale and the complexity of the driving that a level four vehicle can achieve. Some of those vehicles, by the way, won't have steering wheels. So uh, level four doesn't uh, necessarily mean you have to have a steering wheel. It just means that it can only operate within its specific um, operational design domain. And so, yeah, those level four vehicles will be able to deliver a lot of the value, a lot of the safety benefits, a lot of the accessibility benefits that people promise for automated vehicles. The task really is for the regulatory environment to kind of steer the types of vehicle, the types of service that emerge towards the sorts of things that deliver the biggest benefits, the safety benefits, the accessibility benefits, the inclusivity benefits, the economic benefits that we all believe to be there. Perfect segue actually, Nick, into my question, which is where transport planners, transport managers, highways managers, how they have to take the news from last week about that first step and and how they should plan the future. Because, you know, simple question, white lines on the road, are they going to be more or less important in an automated future? Because that has a bearing on what they spend their budgets on the value of shared mobility the value of reducing individual journeys and having a vehicle turn up and take you when you need to go somewhere that again is something that we're seeing with with cabs but we need to understand the the time scales because that's going to have a major effect on how we plan and basically, when you think about the amount of changes in transport now with more homeworking, different patterns of travel, where does this fit in and how can they think about the integration? One of the driving forces for the, the, the designs, the, the planning of their transport environment, 
has to be climate emergency. How can we act to mitigate the worst impacts of the, the carbon emissions? How, how can we design our environments to enable more sustainable use of transportation? Now, some of that involves shifting to automated vehicles, shifting to mobility as a service, but a lot of that also involves shifting to active transport, you know, enabling walking and cycling, enabling public transport to operate more effectively. So I think the role for the planners is to set out the vision of what they want their environments to be like. How do they want the, 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 the transport system to deliver uh, the environment that, uh, that the people and uh, that the residents and businesses want, and then allow the technology and the innovators to help in delivering that vision. And as I say, so some of that will be supported by automation, but a lot of that will also come from just better use of existing modes of transport, the, um, the active travel, the, the, the public transport. And on the, the, it's interesting you say about white lines, they should just make it consistent. And the important point is that what is put out there is represented in a digital map so that the vehicles understand that they're coming to a, a 20 mile per hour zone or a narrow lane. And that's reflected in their digital map. They don't necessarily need to know through line markings. The line markings are a communication to a human who has eyes, whereas a vehicle can have that stored in, in a digital map. So yeah. understanding how to present the line markings for a human and also being able to communicate that via a digital map is the is the important aspect. That's Professor Nick Reed. If you want to know anything about connected and autonomous vehicles, he is the man to talk to. Readmobility.co.uk is the web address. Uh, thanks for joining us. We've only scratched the surface on this. Could have talked forever. Um, we'll have to get you back on Highways Voices again uh, in a few weeks or months' time. But for now, thanks very much for giving us such a brilliant insight. Always a pleasure to catch up, Paul. Yeah, nice to see you. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. So fascinating stuff there with Professor Nick Reed. And uh, when you think about it, if you were to actually pay him his consultancy time uh, to come and give you that sort of insight, uh, it would have cost you a fortune. He's one of the world's leading experts on the subject and there he was this week for us on highways voices uh, now it is time on highways voices before we go for the feature that is adrian's accolade and it's where adrian tatum picks out somebody that we've reported on during the week or some organization and gives them the thumbs up for some great work for the industry. Who wins Adrian's accolade this week, Adrian? Well, not actually from the industry per se, but indirectly. The team at Queen Mary University in London get my accolade this week. Researchers there and, and, and from a number of other institutions supporting them are examining pupils at 85 schools in London and Luton, including several in the Southwark area of London. And the aim is to find out how ultra-low emission zones are having an effect on their mental health, but also their mental ability. So obviously the, the low emission zones are in place to cut traffic and improve air quality in London. And the research project wants to find out how this affects children's ability to solve problems and remember things. This study will last for three years and we'll look at how children's mental health also develops over that period as a result. So I think it takes the air quality work being done in the UK to yet another level and we can't underestimate 
the effect that air quality is having on our younger generation. We've seen evidence on how it's affecting the older generation with increasing lung problems and other health issues. So really interesting to see how it's affecting those, those younger children. And obviously we can map that through the progress of their lives as well. And I just think this project deserves um, some real recognition. And that's why it's won Adrian's accolade this week on Highways Voices. And that will do it for this week. Uh, thank you very much to Adrian and thank you to Professor Nick Reed for joining us next week. Uh, we're hopefully going to be looking at training off the back of the announcement from a couple of weeks ago about the funding for signals, upgrades and maintenance across local authorities in England. We'll find out how we can get the expertise needed to actually do the work that'll be next week on highways voices but for now i'll just remind you to subscribe to this podcast by uh, clicking on the link that you'll find in the blurb to a range of uh, podcast providers and we'll talk again next week thanks for listening highways voices join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry 